I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. If this is your first time listening to the show, I might recommend starting with a different episode. Uh, this is usually... Well, it's, this is a poetry podcast. Uh, the, the old slogan I used was a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. This episode is about a, a very other and a very intractable problem. There's going to be a little bit of poetry, I think, toward the end. But uh, if, if you're really looking for poetry, then you can go to almost any other of the now 82 episodes on the public feed. Or... Uh, you can go to sleerickets.substack.com and sign up for The Secret Show. There's 20 episodes up there now and a couple of bonuses, and there are a few more coming every month. It tends to be slightly, le- <laughs> however ill-advised and incautious this podcast is on a regular basis, that is where it is even uh, even more so. Uh, so I, I, I thank you all and welcome. Just one more time, <laughs> this, is, this is not a... T- typical episode, but I hope it will be a worthwhile one. I I have been planning this for a long time, or rather I have been chewing this over for a long time and have, you know, sat down to record a number of times. I've made a lot of notes, read a lot of books, and I finally just, I I think I'm just going to give it a try day of. It's Wednesday. (laughs) I'm going to probably give this only a slight edit and just have done with it because I'm not really sure how much more I can meditate on it. All right. In her 2006 stand-up comedy special, Jesus is Magic, Sarah Silverman boasted that she would be the first comic to shit on Martin Luther King. Today, I guess I'm going to be the first podcaster to shit on beloved author, internationally celebrated, inspirational speaker, and uh, a universally venerated Holocaust survivor, Victor E. Frunkel, author of Man's Search for Meaning, a fabulously successful book. The cover of my edition uh, claims that it has sold 12 million copies, at least when that when that edition came out, it had done. So it's probably sold even more by now. It has been recommended to me by family, by friends, by neighbors, by strangers. Uh, when I when I bought a copy at the bookstore, the young, hip guy who sold it to me said, oh, I, I just got a copy of this book. It's supposed to be great. Uh, this is a book that is given as a gift to graduates, to Uh, divorcees, to widowers, to people having a midlife crisis, to people having a quarter-life crisis. It is given, uh, it is given, it is recommended, it is talk-showed, it is bundled in uh, self-help packages. It is, it could not be more, more celebrated. It is hard to think of another book that is more universally respected because even if they're books that sell more copies, there are few there are a few books that everybody seems to treat with the same, with the kind of reverence that they treat man's search for meaning. So this is the <laughs> so this is the episode in which I tell you that man's search for meaning by Victor E. Frankel is actually a terrible, terrible book. 
and that it's not just a a badly done book or a or a a, a disappointing book. It's actually, I think, maybe an actively harmful book. I think it is a a a bad bad book. So. Uh, just to let you know where we're going, maybe a little bit of a circuitous route to get there, but I, uh, <laughs> that's what we're doing this week. Uh, thank you for having some patience with me. I have, for the last year, been working on a private research and writing project for a, um, a New York family. I've been doing uh, writing about their... Uh, their patriarch who who survived Auschwitz and um, it's been an extraordinary experience. I've learned a great deal. Uh, Brian got me the gig, uh, which, which was which was very kind of him. I have been very pleased with the work I've been able to do so far. We're kind of getting toward wrapping it up. The family has been nothing but generous and supportive. It has been a, it has been a really wonderful and uh, richly uh, instructive experience all around. Now, I previously had studied the Holocaust in elementary school, middle school, high school, you know, in the typical way American school children, children do. I, in college, I, I went to Hungary and took a course there on the Holocaust in Hungary. I uh, visited Auschwitz one and two. Auschwitz was, was not just one location. It was, uh, it was actually a complex of something like 40 sites, but the the original site, Auschwitz One, which is the I think the original location of the Arbeit Machtfrei sign, and I think that is where they they first implemented what Camus refers to as the Little E's, which is an old medieval torture. And then Auschwitz Two, Birkenau, is is maybe the most is, is is what most people think of when they think of Auschwitz. It's the giant brick gate with the train tracks running into the camp, and um, and a million people murdered. You know, beyond that, I have read a number of books about the the rise of the Third Reich. Um, uh, Berlin Diary by William Shearer is, I think, a particularly helpful book for giving a sense of what it was like to be in Germany while this was beginning to happen. Eric, uh, fuck, what's his name? Eric Larson's the, In the Garden of Beasts, uh, named after the Tiergarten in Berlin, uh, is a little. It's I mean it's very poppy, but it's it's I think um, uh, instructive. I've already talked uh, with Brian a little bit on the show about um, Albert Speer's uh, Inside the Third Reich, which is a, a very morally compromised but still really informative book. Uh, I I am I, I I say all this just to say that like I am not any kind of scholar, not any kind of expert, really truly just a dilettante, but. I have, you know, I know more than the average bear about the Holocaust and the Third Reich. Um, this is before beginning this project, during which uh, time I've read transcri transcripts, interviews. I've interviewed, um, I have interviewed uh, family members of survivors. I've watched interviews um, of survivors directly um, from the Shoah Foundation, which has been really helpful. Uh, the Yad Vashem has uh, an extraordinary online database, as do a number of other Holocaust museums and foundations. I've been very lucky in getting access to a lot of first and secondhand uh, records from the family, as well as from public sources and private sources after some petition. 
uh, in addition to this sort of more focused research, I, I also read Elie Wiesel's book, Night, which Brian and Ryan both strongly recommended. It is a staple of, of American school children being introduced to the Holocaust, and it is well worth reading. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I, I also read Survival in Auschwitz by Primo Levi. I, I found that to be probably the single best book I've read, specifically on the camps. And and it was having it was while I was reading Survival in Auschwitz, I talked to a neighbor who said, "Oh well, well, if you've read those two books, you you have to read the next. Obviously, the next book you have to read is Man's Search for Meaning, which, which as I said, several other people had already recommended. I will make a note here that whatever my largely wobbly self education on the Holocaust has been, which has been, as I said, like n- not trifling, even if it is." you know, far from scholarly, my experience in talking to Jewish friends is that there is a a depth, an intensity, and a an earliness of education about the Holocaust among uh, at least you know, middle class Western Jews. I mean, I'm sure it's also the case in Israel, uh, but the, the, basically the most educated Jews I know have ready to hand just an extraordinary amount of of raw information about the Holocaust. It, it, it is quite understandably a a subject in which they are deeply schooled from a very early age. Uh, enough so that 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 you know whatever whatever I know, it didn't really even compare to. Uh, you know, being someone who's who's currently immersed in the subject, my knowledge still was, you know, a, at best occasionally par with the knowledge of, of most of my Jewish friends. Notably, everyone I can think of who recommended Man's Search for Meaning, including all of the blurbs on the back of the book, with the exception of Harold Kushner, who wrote the introduction. All of these recommendations have come from Gentiles. Brian, who knows far more about the subject than I do and who has read everything about the subject, had only vaguely heard of this book. Uh, I I think, um, I'm going to come back to this topic, but I think in some ways it is actually a Christian book. But let me let me start by talking a little bit about Night. So Night is uh, a book that Elie Wiesel wrote. It was published in 1950, no, 1965, I think. No, sorry, it was published in the 50s, and then it was finally published in French, uh, French edition in 1958 and an English edition in 1960. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, later, um, uh, this book you know, had not a little bit to do with it. It is roughly a yeah. So it's basically I, I I would describe this book as a as a hundred page scream. It is extremely fleet. It is a lyric first, a narrative second, and a history third. It recounts a a story that is very close to Wiesel's own. It's a it's a, a narrative about a, a boy named Ellie, short for Eliezer, who is. Uh, grows up Jewish in Romania and then is 
uh, transported through, I, I don't know what the borders with Hungary were at the time, but he, uh, he ends up being deported ultimately to Poland and to Auschwitz with his father. Uh, the rest of his family is killed, and he and his father spend most of the war uh, in the camp helping each other survive until the end when his father dies and, and Ellie uh, alone makes it out. Uh, it is harrowing. It is moving. It is, as, as Brian has talked about, it is exceedingly economical without ever feeling rushed. Uh, it is a, it's a really extraordinary piece of writing, well worth reading. It is currently sort of fashionable, especially among leftists, to dismiss Knight I think this is largely for sort of one reason masquerading as another. Wiesel, as I understand it, is a is uh, actually I believe he's now deceased. I don't remember, but he he um, you know for 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 much of his very long life uh, was a. I mean I think maybe most if not all of his long life he was a very vocal supporter of Israel. Uh, and uh, to, to an extent to which he he's riled up plenty of people who have criticisms of Israel. I know next to nothing about any of that and, and have no interest in discussing it. The argument that a lot of leftists seem to make about Knight is that it is historically inaccurate, that uh, the the story that he tells is not his own story exactly. I, I, I think this is basically a bullshit line of criticism. I, I think that, that the... Uh, the book, even among people who praise it, is sort of re referred to as a, a narrative. Sometimes some people refer to it as a novel. Wiesel called it his deposition. It is, as I said, it is chiefly lyric. It is a howl of pain that is uh, extraordinarily effective in communicating that pain. And even if Wiesel were not a survivor at all, this book would still fundamentally be true because it is an account of an experience that hundreds of thousands, that millions of European Jews underwent, coming from one place or another, ending up at one camp or another. It is a it is telling a basically true story, regardless of what all of the particulars are. I, I also think that arguments about the accuracy of individual Holocaust narratives are, are pretty mis guided in general. I mean, think about how little you agree with your wife about an argument you had one hour ago. And then imagine being uh, crammed into a, a cattle car with 80 other people, uh, given a bucket, sent through freezing cold weather for days and days and days on end, being given you know minimal water, if any, often surviving off of a uh, uh, snow and, and icicle drippings from the edges of the, the the few windows that were accessible by those on the very far, you know, very outside between the, the boards uh, covering them over, and then being thrust out of this train car, you know, at, at a point at which a fifth of the people in the train car are already dead, you are told to leave behind all of the luggage that you packed with you. You are then immediately separated from the, the women in your group or the, the men in your group. If you're a woman, you are... Uh, then swiftly divided uh, into two lines, one of which seems to contain all of the old, sick, weak, and handicapped people, and one of which contains 
all of the attractive or strong or large people. And then uh, half of you are, are marched off toward a building with a big squared off smokestack and half of you are uh, told to stand there and kept standing for the next 24 hours sometimes. I mean, just, just imagine how shocking, disorienting and, and bewildering this might be just for the very first moments of arrival at a camp like Auschwitz. So add to that that confusion, discrepancy, inconsistency, uh, and doubt were all very much part of the Nazis' design. All of which is to say that night and survival in Auschwitz, and even to an extent man's search for meaning, are all well worth reading for the sake of learning about the camps. Man's search for meaning is only, though, partly about that. Uh, very quickly, because um, I do have a few passages I want to I want to cite from Levy's book, uh, Prima Levy's Survival in Auschwitz. It was uh, first published in Italian as the, the title was, um, I don't remember the Italian for it, but, but it translates to If This Is a Man, which is a pretty chilling title. Uh, it is It is partly an account of his time in Auschwitz, but it is, you know, where Wiesel was a teenage aspiring rabbinical student when he was deported. Uh, Primo Levi, who, who was he was um, he was uh, in the mountains with the Italian resistance um, at, uh, at the time of his arrest. But he, before that, was a professional chemist. He was, he was uh, um, about ten years older than Wiesel, and uh, he was a professional chemist for many decades after the war as well. He was even you know a chemist in Auschwitz. I mean that is largely why he survived. There is, by the way, like the single most important factor in surviving Auschwitz was getting there late that almost every Auschwitz survivor didn't spend that much time there because you know the great majority of those who came to Auschwitz at all, as many as 70% of a given train load, were executed on arrival, were, were marched off the train and then immediately gassed. One of the truest things that Frankl says is uh, that the best of us did not survive. Um, he, he changes that tune later in a kind of a disturbing way. Levy's book is less of a lyric, less of a narrative, and more of a series of analytical essays rather than, you know, he acknowledges, of course, the colossal scale of murder that took place at Auschwitz, but his focus is on the mechanics of everyday survival. If you were lucky and did survive, what did that entail? on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis. How you dealt with food, how you dealt with clothing, how you dealt with being sick or not being sick or trying not to be sick or trying to get into the sick ward for just the right periods of time but not for others. Uh, how you dealt with uh, uh, theft and trade in the black market and most of all, how you dealt with the, with the intra-camp hierarchy because the SS, just like the Afrikaners, just like the American slave owners, were very adept at using those that they had power over in order to, um, to keep each other in line. They, they appointed capos, blockel testers, lager campos, capos, all, all of these different tiers of uh, prisoner functionary. In some cases, these were non-Jewish prisoners. That um, the the capos are the most notorious. The sort of the work foremen who were in many cases uh, non-Jewish criminal prisoners, 
and uh, and so they were they were frequently violent sadists to begin with, and then they were put in a position of being able to inflict more violence on um, on those under them. But uh, but Levy is very attuned to this hierarchy, a hierarchy he says that is defined as much by by luck and the appearance of good luck or the appearance of of a fortunate association uh, as it did, as it had to do with actual usefulness or barter or 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 any any kind of obvious mercenary advantage uh, he tells one story about a a captain of industry who made a point of uh, washing his shirt every day um, which meant literally washing it and then sleeping with it wet on his body so it, so he didn't lose it um, so that his shirt was always clean and he shaved his face every day, which required, of course, trading away food and other advantages in order to, to access what he needed for that um, in order to present a, uh, a respectable appearance. And, and as, as Levy, as Levy uh, recalls, this trick panned out for him and he was finally selected as a, as a, uh, a block tester or some kind of camp leader at some point um, simply because of his impressive appearance and from there he kind of leveraged that advantage um, one to the other and uh, Levy has a, a pretty pretty um, cutting uh, farewell remark for him <laughs> okay he concludes his story of, of Alfred L who became what what uh, what Levy calls a prominent in the camp the, the thing you wanted to do was be a prominent so he was named he was named the head of a chemical commando and then levy's parting words on him are i do not know how his story continued but i feel it is quite probable that he managed to escape death and today is still living his cold life of the determined and joyless dominator uh, so so he he is um he's pretty eloquent when it comes to the just the the way people got by good bad and usually pretty ugly he says there comes to light the existence of two particularly well-differentiated categories among men, the saved and the drowned. Other pairs of opposites, the good and the bad, the wise and the foolish, the cowards and the courageous, the unlucky and the fortunate, are considerably less distinct. They seem less essential, and above all, they allow for more numerous and complex intermediary gradations. This division is much less evident in ordinary life, for there it rarely happens that a man loses himself. A man is normally not alone, and in his rise or fall is tied to the destinies of his neighbors, so that it is exceptional for anyone to acquire unlimited power, or to fall by a succession of defeats into utter ruin. But in the lager, things are different. The lager is, of course, the name for one of the, the German word for the camp. Here, the struggle to survive is without respite because everyone is desperately and ferociously alone. In history and in life, one sometimes seems to glimpse a ferocious law which states, to he that has will be given. From he that has not will be taken away. In the lager, where man is alone and where the struggle for life is reduced to its primordial mechanism, this unjust law is openly in force, is recognized by all. He goes on, at Auschwitz in 1944, of the old Jewish prisoners, we will not speak of the others here, as their condition was different. Kleine Nummer, low numbers, less than 150,000, a low number was somebody who had arrived early in camp. The lower the number, the more seniority you had, and the more extraordinary your survival. Uh, 
of the of the low numbers, less than 150,000, only a few, the numbers, numbers less than 150,000, only a few hundred had survived. Not one was an ordinary heftling, which is a prisoner, vegetating in the ordinary commandos and subsisting on the normal ration. Meaning if you were a normal, ordinary prisoner, you didn't make it. There remained only the doctors, tailors, shoemakers, musicians, cooks, young attractive homosexuals, friends or compatriots of some authority in the camp, or they were particularly pitiless, vigorous, and inhuman individuals installed, right? The, 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 the worst, the most vicious, the most uh, self-serving, the most sadistic of the prisoners were installed following an investiture by the SS command, which showed itself in such choices to possess satanic knowledge of human beings. The SS had a special gift for identifying sadists, for identifying people to put in positions of power such that they would abuse it. They were put in positions such as capos, Blockeltester, etc. Blockeltester is senior block warden, is one way to translate that. This is the same uh, system that the um, the Nazis used in the ghettos, even before the camps. Um, in the Lodz ghetto, uh, the second largest city in Poland, second largest ghetto in Poland after the Warsaw ghetto, or an orphanage owner named Chaim Rumkowski was named the the elder of the ghetto and the head of the, the Jewish elder of, of, of Lodz, and he, was, he, was, um, he appointed a Judenrat, which was the Nazi-approved Jewish council that basically worked as a, as a local arm to carry out the, the designs of the Nazis. Rumkowski was totally, totally ruthless as, uh, he, he, as, he, as he called himself king of the ghetto. He met personally with Himmler. He had his entire own Judenrat, his own council that he had appointed. He had them all denounced and executed at one point and then replaced with a completely new council. He saw to the deportation of, of all of the children in the Lodz ghetto. Early on, he had all of the children deported to Auschwitz. Um, and then once the ghetto was, was fully liquidated, as they called it, he um, himself was, of course, sent to Auschwitz as well. This is a very standard part of the, the SS protocol. Um, Levy uh, says that if you were not somebody who was able to get in good with a capo, with a local tester, with one of these officials, one of these, these sub, these sort of prison, prisoner functionaries, um, if you were not somebody who was able to get in good with them, if you were not somebody who, who was a prominent, who had some kind of edge, some kind of advantage, a skilled uh, some kind of some kind of professional skill that you could put to use. Whosoever does not know how to become an organizator, an combinator, prominent, soon becomes a Muslim. Muslim. This is a term all three uh, writers use. It was a it was a common it was Auschwitz slang for somebody who had given up the will to live. Muslim was literally means something like Mohammedan. It's a, a, a an old outdated term for a Muslim, and there's not any clear derivation I have found, or rather there are a number of, of hypothetical etymologies, one of which was that I think some prisoners after a head injury would wear rags wrapped around their heads and so looked like they were wearing turbans. There are a number of other possible etymologies. At any rate, it was the universal term at Auschwitz for somebody who had, had gone dead in the eyes before he died in his body. Uh, Levy said, you soon, if you, if you, if you don't have an edge, you soon become a Musulman. In life, a third way exists and is in fact the rule, right? In life, most people are just getting by. They're neither hapless victims nor are they ruthless killers. They are just coasting through the middle way. 
The middle way, as he says, does not exist in the concentration camp. To sink is the easiest of matters. It is enough to carry out all the orders one receives, to eat only the ration, to observe the discipline of the work in the camp. Experience showed that only exceptionally could one survive more than three months in this way. Uh, Levy himself uh, survived in Auschwitz way longer than the average survivor. He arrived in 1943. I mean, most survivors, most people who ended up surviving Auschwitz arrived in late 1944. Uh, the, the camp was uh, mostly emptied in January of 1945, and then the Soviets liberated the, the remaining prisoners um, at the end of January. Uh, the rest of them were, were, were marched off to Gliwice and, and to various other camps. Levy got there in 1943. He survived two, almost two years. I, I think he, I mean, he was certainly there for two full winters in Auschwitz, which is truly extraordinary. And were it not for the... The, um, a couple of very close friends that he developed in the camp and, uh, and his own, his own uh, privilege as a chemist, he certainly would not have survived. Even, even so, I mean, he describes the last days in Auschwitz when all of the, the, the resources for the camp were gone, when cholera was, was ripping through the survivors of the camp, when they were all desperate to find clean snow to melt down and drink for water. Um, he, he describes both working very hard to help those who were in his barracks with him and barring the doors of the barracks and beating away other prisoners to keep them out so that they could not get at the heat and the remaining resources that those inside had managed to squirrel away. So, I mean, he, he directly describes having to having to prevent other prisoners from surviving in order to, to achieve his own survival. He is utterly, utterly unromantic about what it took to survive in Auschwitz. Uh, the first thing being, of course, t good timing and luck. He, he says uh, early on, there's a really memorable moment in which he, he's, he's dying of thirst uh, soon after his arrival. Driven by thirst, I eyed a fine icicle outside the window within hand's reach. I opened the window and broke off the icicle, but at once a large, heavy guard prowling outside brutally snatched it away from me. Warum? I asked in my poor German. Why? Hier ist kein Warum, was the guard's reply. Hier ist kein Warum. Here is no why. Later on, he's a, a friend named Klausner, who um, he says most prisoners carved their names into the bottom of their bowls. You had to keep your bowl and your spoon on you at all times or you would lose it. Klausner shows me the bottom of his bowl. Where others have carved their numbers, and Alberto and I are names, Klausner has written, ne pas chercher à comprendre. I don't speak French, so I, 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 um, I forgive my pronunciation, but ne pas chercher à comprendre means, if I'm not mistaken, do not seek to understand. These seem to be the, the morals, if there are any, of survival in Auschwitz. Here is no why. Do not seek to understand. He says, we now invite the reader to contemplate the possible meaning in the lager of the words good and evil, just and unjust. Let everybody judge on the basis of the picture we have outlined and of the examples given above how much of our ordinary moral world could survive on this side of the barbed wire. Um, the third book was Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Viktor Frankl was also at Auschwitz. He, he 
transferred from there to Dachau and to a few other camps. He was eventually at Turkheim, which was a sub-camp of Kaufering. One of the reasons it's difficult to criticize him is because, um, first, he did something truly extraordinary, which is to say he, he survived a concentration. He survived a death camp and, and, and several other concentration camps. He, he made it through some of the very worst conditions imaginable. Uh, and that achievement can never be dismissed or diminished. I, I certainly have no wish to do so. And so insofar as Man's Search for Meaning is his account of having done that, again, I, I can do nothing but you know, listen in, in reverent silence. The problem is that that's not mostly what it is. Oh, I'm, actually, I miss, I'm sorry, I misremembered. It doesn't say over 12 million copies sold on the front. It says over 16 million copies sold. So uh, the first part of um, this book is called Experiences in a Concentration Camp. So I think the original title in German was um, A Psychologist uh, Goes to a Concentration Camp. Um, so Viktor Frankl was a psychologist. He was in his 40s when he went to the camp. Th I think late 30s, early 40s when he went to um, the, the camp. He was a, a, a well-established professional. He was um, trained in the psychoanalytic uh, tradition. I, I believe he had some personal correspondence with uh, Sigmund Freud. He was in the psychoanalytic chain of anointment. He was... I think a degree or two, maybe two degrees from Freud. Um, so he was rel you know, relatively early and, and um, enthusiastic practitioner of psychoanalysis. He, as we will get into later, diverged from, from Freud's theories and developed some of his own. He had published a number of books and he was a college professor when he was arrested and deported. He describes surviving in the camp, in the various camps, in ways that don't totally, uh, the, the, some of which line up with with what Levy says, but where Levy is focused mostly on the details, the mechanics of getting by, Frankel is even in the first half of the book, even in experiences in a concentration camp, he is mostly interested in drawing moral conclusions from uh, from his experiences and in assessing the moral value of the prisoners. He does uh, briefly mention that there were some, some sort of pure sadists among the guards and among some of the capos. He, he talks about the, that there were good capos and bad capos, um, good blockhole testers and bad blockhole testers, good prisoner functionaries and bad prisoner functionaries. He is mostly interested though in the moral worth of the ordinary prisoner. He actually is, is um, you know, his, his treatment of the SS is sort of startling. Late in the book, he, he makes a point of saying that most SS men were pretty good guys. And he even goes so far as to say that the commandant of Turkheim, of the final concentration camp he was at, the guy in charge, the SS Ober, something, not Ober, the SS Oberscharführer, Karl Hoffmann, the commandant of Turkheim, uh, Frankel's treatment of him is, is is almost entirely to to wax on about what a good man he was, and that he 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 did his job only reluctantly. Hoffman does seem to have been a less bad SS commandant than many, but he still oversaw 
a sub camp of Kaufering, which is, it was a work camp, but it was one of the, it had some of the worst conditions among the work camps. And of course, was also a place of frequent and merciless murder, torture, starvation, deprivation en masse. So uh, Frankl's treatment of the, of the perpetrators of the Holocaust is surprisingly uh, light in its touch. Um, his primary question, and this is where I think there is a worthwhile question. I'm, tr I'm trying as I, as I, as I go back through this book. I try to. I'm trying to give it the benefit of the doubt. I think the worthwhile question Frankel asks is this: In the worst conditions, when all one wants is to have one's pain removed, is it still possible to make moral choices? Um, unfortunately, what this ends up meaning is that he spends most of the book chastising other prisoners, talking about the bad ways that some of the prisoners tried to get by versus the good ways. And by bad, I don't just mean manipulative or exploitative. I mean uh, that he would say, if you smoked the cigarettes that you got uh, through, the, through the black market, rather than using them as currency, then you were giving up. Whereas if you missed a meal, if you failed to get your daily soup because you were excited by the prisoner talent show that was put on in which people sang songs and told inspirational stories, if you missed a meal because you wanted to see the talent show, that was actually a sign that you were of strong moral character and you were doing the right thing. He spends the second half of the book, I mean, maybe even more than half, uh, talking about, the second half of the book is called Logotherapy in a Nutshell. Logotherapy was Frankl's um, uh, revision of psychotherapy. Again, I think it has it at its heart kind of an interesting proposition. He his treatment of Freud is extremely simplistic. He says that that Freud believed that man wanted only pleasure, and he seems to think that Freud thought this was like a good thing, like this was something Freud endorsed. Um, whereas really, what Freud is doing is is really more of an evolutionary argument, saying people do pursue pleasure. And in fact, pleasure seems to be correlated to what is good for us, even if that can be obviously uh, mis misguided in the modern day, as we've learned with something as simple as, say, candy. That it is obvious, there's an obvious evolutionary advantage in why candy tastes good, but there are problems in our merely pursuing pleasure uh, as if that were still an inerrant guide to our survival. So, I mean, Freud is uh, is a quack when it comes to science, but he's a visionary and a genius and a beautiful writer. Um, Frankel is none of those things, but I think where he, he has a meaningful contribution, it is in saying that rather than simply trying to unravel one's the origins of one's neurosis, I mean, Freud seemed to really believe that the principle of a lot of Freud's talk therapy was, was that if you learned the secret truth about yourself, then you would be cured. That seems to be, in retrospect, a pretty shaky assumption. Frankl's proposition was what most people really want is not to have the mystery of their early life unraveled. What they want is to identify the meaning of their life. Most people want to know what is my life, what's the meaning of my life? And he chooses the slightly confusing word logotherapy to mean the therapy of 
meaning. He is in his painstaking elaboration of some of Freud's apparatus for psychoanalysis. Frankel is just as much of a quack. The the actual official book that he wrote uh, detailing the the ins and outs of logotherapy was 20 volumes long. He was like Primo Levi, a, a professional before, during, and after the war. He was, instead of being a chemist um, or a rabbinical student, he was, in this case, a, a self-help guru. He was a self-help guru before the war, he was a self-help guru after the war, and he was a self-help guru dur- during the war. Here is, here is um, an excerpt from a speech he, he, he boasts about giving to other prisoners in the camp after a day in which they were punished and were not allowed to eat any food. He gave a long speech that he said was very, very rousing success. It made everybody feel better. He said to his fellow prisoners, he said, uh, I, I said that someone looks down on each of us in difficult hours, a friend, a wife, somebody alive or dead, or a god, and he would not expect us to disappoint him. He would hope to find us suffering proudly, not miserably, knowing how to die. He goes on, those of us who had religious, who had any religious faith, I said frankly, could understand without difficulty. I told them of a comrade who on his arrival in camp had tried to make a pact with heaven. I told, let me, let me start that again. This is what he's saying to his fellow prisoners in a concentration camp after a day in which they had been deliberately starved by the SS as punishment for not betraying one of their own. What he told them was, I told them of a comrade who on his arrival in camp had tried to make a pact with heaven that his suffering and death should save the human being he loved from a painful end. A man came to the camp and he said, to God, I am willing to suffer as long as you spare the person I love. It's presumably also in, in a, you know, in some camp, maybe a, a women's camp or somewhere else. Um, uh, Frankel's own wife died in Bergen-Belsen while he was in Auschwitz, or while he was in um, uh, Turkheim. He goes on, he says, For this man, suffering and death were meaningful. His was a sacrifice of the deepest significance. He did not want to die for nothing. None of us wanted that. Well, there's just one problem with this beautiful story about a pact with heaven. It didn't work. The pact didn't work. The man didn't want to die for nothing. Of course he didn't want to die for nothing. He made a pact with heaven uh, saying he would be willing to suffer any uh, any pain, any indignity if, if his loved one could only be spared. Of course he did. That's a, that's a deeply human, sympathetic thing to do. It didn't work. There's, a, there's a, I think, a particularly poignant moment in uh, Survival in Auschwitz when Levy has just described a one of the regular selections, these selections that happened throughout their time in the camp and, and the, the, the SS would, uh, or it wasn't even an SS, it was, it was a camp doctor. It was a, a prisoner doctor would be brought to assess the, the physical condition of, of the prisoners. What would happen is that you would be selected, you'd be chosen either to survive or to be killed. But then it would be a few days before they would take the ones who had been marked to die. So you would be selected and then you would go right back to your bunk with you know, a third of the people in the room knowing they'd been marked to be executed in a few days' time. So during this selection, Levy was, uh, made the good line. His bunkmate, um, Kuhn, made the good line. Beppo made the bad line. Beppo was marked for death. Now everyone is busy scraping the bottom of his bowl with a spoon so as not to waste the last drops of a soup. 
a confused metallic clatter signifying the end of the day. Silence slowly prevails, and then from my bunk on the top row, I see and hear old Kuhn praying aloud with his beret on his head, swaying backwards and forwards violently. Kuhn is thanking God because he has not been chosen. Kuhn made the good line. He's praying to thank God because he has not been chosen. Here's Levy's comment on that. And this is how I feel when I read Frankel's speech to his fellow prisoners. Kuhn is out of his senses. Does he not see Beppo the Greek in the bunk next to him? Beppo who is 20 years old and who is and is going to the gas chamber the day after tomorrow and knows it and lies there looking fixedly at the light without saying anything and without even thinking anymore? Can Kuhn fail to realize that next time it will be his turn? Does Kuhn not understand that what has happened today is an abomination which no propitiatory prayer, no pardon, no expiation by the guilty, which nothing at all in the power of man can ever clean again? If I was God, I would spit at Kuhn's prayer. So I'll read a few more passages from Frankel's book because... The, the moral of his book, if the moral of Wiesel's book is God has abandoned us and man is a savage to man, and the moral of Levy's book is that survival is a, is a brutal, brutal task that has no relationship to morality at all. The moral of Frankel's book is very different, very different. He says, if there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Right? It seems like a simple enough claim to begin with. If there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. But it is actually the implications of that seemingly simple conclusion are pretty odious. Here's some of them. Here lies the chance for a man either to make use of or to forego the opportunities of attaining the moral values that, in, that a difficult situation may afford him. By difficult situation, he's talking about a death camp, a Nazi death camp. He goes on, and this decides whether he is worthy of his sufferings or not. The question is not, uh, why is this happening? The question is, uh, are you worthy of your sufferings? Psychological observations of the prisoners, this is Frankel, psychological observations of the prisoners have shown that only the men, only, only the men who allowed their inner hold on their moral and spiritual selves to subside eventually fell victim to the camp's degenerating influences. I'll read that one more time. Only the men who allowed their inner hold on their moral and spiritual selves to subside eventually fell victim to the camp's degenerating influences. Here's another passage. We have already spoken of the tendency there was to look into the past, to help make the present with all its horrors less real. This is, again, talking about the wrong way to survive Auschwitz. If you tried to live in a fantasy, if you tried to forget what was happening, if you tried to daydream, this was wrong. Why? In robbing the present of its reality, there lay a certain danger. It became easy to overlook the opportunities to make something positive of camp life. Daydreaming was wrong because it became easy to overlook the opportunities to make something positive of camp life. Now, by something positive, he doesn't mean getting a little extra bread, getting uh, shoes that fit. He doesn't mean getting a little break from the cold. He means 
uh, finding an opportunity to test your the strength of your moral soul against the, your suffering to see if you are worthy of it. Here is his conclusion about what the camp prisoners needed most. What the concentration camp prisoners needed most. Frankel's conclusion? What was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude toward life. He goes on, every situation is distinguished by its uniqueness and there is always only one right answer to the problem posed by the situation at hand. There is always only one right answer to the problem posed by the situation at hand. He has this funny question. So, so the second half of the book, as I said, he mostly spends explaining logotherapy, explaining his quack psychiatric practice. And of the the, thre the moralizing threads that dangle from the, the first half of his book, which is his camp narrative, he kind of weaves an enormous elaborate wall tapestry of moral lectures grounded in his pseudoscientific practice and stamped with authority by his experience in the camp. He, he repeats again and again and again, I'm not just a psychiatrist, I'm also an Auschwitz survivor. He uses that frequently to endorse what he's saying to prove that if that if, uh, that, if, that if I, an Auschwitz survivor, can have maintained my moral cleanliness, then you too can do the same. He, he, much of the book is given over to examples of lectures or rhetorical questions that he offers either fellow camp prisoners or students or patients and the ways in which uh, his clever constructions wowed those that he offered them to. So here's here's another example. He's speaking, this is a group therapy for women who have lost their children. Well, I think it's not, maybe it may not be just women, but, but it's group therapy for, um, for, for parents who have lost children, for people who've lost loved ones in their close, close family. And the specific person who is sort of up for consideration at the moment is a woman whose, uh, whose beloved son has died and whose other son is very severely handicapped. So he offers a question to the whole group. He says, the question was whether an ape, which was being used to develop poliomyelitis serum, and for this reason punctured again and again, would ever be able to grasp the meaning of its suffering. Was a lab animal saying, could a lab animal who's being effectively tortured to death for the sake of researching uh, medicine for humans, could that lab animal ever grasp the meaning of his suffering? Right, because, it, because the suffering does have a meaning. Unanimously, the group replied that of course it would not. With its limited intelligence, it could not enter into the world of man, i.e. the only world in which the meaning of its suffering would be understandable. The animal is never going to understand why its suffering is meaningful. Then I pushed forward with the following question. And what about man? Are you sure that the human world is a terminal point in the evolution of the cosmos? Is it not conceivable that there is still another dimension, a world beyond man's world, a world in which the question of an ultimate meaning of human suffering would find an answer? Ha ha ha. The crowd was... Uh, awed and moved, and he uh, and once again, Dr. Frankel uh, saved the day. So, reading this, I was baffled. <laughs> I couldn't believe that this was the conclusion that he that he had led his patients to. What Frankel says is, well, the, the animal can't understand that we're torturing it to death uh, for the benefit of human beings who might someday get medicine that would that would save them from this terrible disease. But I am 
not convinced that if the animal could understand that, it would then endorse that explanation. He, he goes on to say that, of course, we also can't understand much of how the world works. And so possibly this woman's dead child, the death of this woman's child, the, the physical uh, developmental disabilities of her other child, these are not just random acts of, of badness. They're just not just not just cruel happenstance. That these are actually designed deliberately. Frankel seems to think that we would happily accept this fate if we knew that, say, cancer was not just a naturally occurring, horrifying disease that uh, kills and disfigures men, women, and children throughout history, seemingly for no reason at all ages, at all of all descriptions, at all times and places. But actually, what if cancer were a, a test designed by godlike aliens and deliberately inflicted upon us for some obscure benefit, not for us, but for them? Maybe a million human beings have to die of cancer for every tiny advancement in, in the alien's godlike plan for their own benefit. I think that is not just not comforting. I think that's horrifying and infuriating to imagine. And yet for Frankel, this is, this is good enough and in fact, the good. He says it's actively bad for people to believe that the universe is cruel and empty and meaningless. And it is actively good for them to believe that their sufferings are part of the design of a conscious God who chooses them for us. Here's what I found to be the most odious passage in this book. I will say that there is a, um, aside from being recommended solely by Christians, the book as a whole has an, an oddly Christian quality to it. Uh, the introduction is written by Harold Kushner, who I, I only his last name tipped me off that he wasn't a, a mainline American Protestant minister because the way he, he refers to himself as a clergyman and the way he talks about uh, uh, God and meaning and morality and the afterlife all just sounds amazingly Christian. Right? Like, I, I'm, I am certain that there is a, there's a, just an enormous store of Jewish thought and literature that, that is totally, I'm totally ignorant of, that I know nothing of. I have no doubts about that. But my understanding, not based on nothing, is that the afterlife is not a big focus of Judaism. Right? I reread recently, or a couple of years ago, I reread the first five books of the Bible, and there's not really any discussion that I remember of the afterlife in those books, which, which of course form the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. There are, there are these two, there, interestingly, there, there are two incidents in the Bible that are, are oddly parallel. I may have mentioned this in, um, in another episode at some point, but, I, but it's worth repeating, I think. Uh, so there are these two moments when a man goes into the wilderness and he encounters a superhuman voice. And the superhuman voice in both cases makes a demand and an offer. The demand is bow down and worship me. 
And the offer is what differs. Everything else is the same. Man is in the wilderness. A superhuman voice approaches him, makes a demand that he bow down and worship it. Now, in one case, the man refuses. And, and that is uh, immediately and obviously understood in the context of the story as being the right thing to do, to refuse the voice. Now, in the other story, the man obeys the voice. And that is immediately and obviously in the context of the story understood as the right thing to do. And so the real difference between these two stories is what the voice offers. Now, in uh, the, the latter example, the voice is the voice of Satan, right? Tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And because we know Jesus is Jesus and because we know Satan is Satan, we don't even really have to pay attention to what he's offering because we already know that the right thing to do is to refuse him. But let's look at what the actual offer is. The offer is, let's imagine for a minute that you don't have sort of Jesus's like internal cosmic Rolodex that tells you who everyone is and what it means and what you're supposed to do. Let's imagine you're just a man in the wilderness listening to a voice. What does the voice offer you? The voice says, bow down and worship me and I will give you food to eat. And he says, bow down and worship me and I will give you power, riches, he says, bow down and worship me, and I will give you glory. Show, you, I will let the whole world know that you, how great you are and that they should all bow down to you, and all you have to do is bow down to me. But these are the wrong offers. When the voice in the wilderness offers you these things, the correct answer is to say no. Now, in the other case, the voice makes a very different offer. The voice says, bow down and worship me, and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the beach. And the correct response when the voice offers you that is to say yes. That's what Abram said to God in the wilderness who approached him and made this offer, and he was right to do it. In the context of the story, it's obviously the case, but that's really the only difference is that offer. And that's pretty consistent throughout uh, the Hebrew scriptures and throughout most of what I know of the Jewish tradition, which is that this is a religion that is focused on living a good life and having a good life for your descendants. And the reward of the uh, of the, the Israelites is not heaven, but the promised land, a land, an actual place on earth. That's the, that's the big reward. The afterlife really doesn't come up. Now, I, as I said, there are Jewish, Jewish mystics, there's the Talmud, there's the Kabbalah, there are all these other things I don't know about. I have no doubt that there's plenty of talk of afterlife in some of those sources, but it's not really the main thing. The afterlife as the focus of the religion is a trait I associate with Christianity and Islam. And this book feels real Christian to me. There is a lot of talk of the afterlife. In fact, a lot of Frankl's uh, uh, arguments for how people should find meaning in suffering are founded specifically on a promise of the afterlife. He frequently uses the expression, uh, every man has his cross to bear. The only thing he cites more often than that is Nietzsche, saying, uh, he, he who has a, a why can bear anyhow. This is what I found to be the most despicable moment in this book. By the way, um, the, 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 the first title, as I said, was a Psychologist 
um, goes to the concentration camps. The the, the next because they there were a number of editions expansions. He added the logotherapy part later. The, the one time the the German title was Trotzdem ja zum Leben sagen, uh, which means say yes to life anyway. <laughs> I mean, truly, like what immediately came to mind there was the chorus of crucified thieves at the end of the life of Brian singing "Always look on the bright side of life," which really feels like it could be the. Uh, the, the soundtrack to this whole book. But this is this is his, his story, the story that just made me furious. Uh, a rabbi from Eastern Europe turned to me and told me his story. He had lost his first wife and their six children in the concentration camp of Auschwitz, where they were gassed. And now it turned out that his second wife was sterile. I observed that procreation is not the only meaning of life, for then life itself would become meaningless, and something which in itself is meaningless cannot be rendered meaningful merely by its perpetuation. That I think, I totally agree with that. I think he's dead on right about that. That the people who say the point of, the meaning of life is to have children uh, are, are, are extremely, are thinking in extremely simplistic terms. I, just think, I think that's an insufferable claim. Uh, so I, I totally agree with him there. However, he goes on, the rabbi evaluated his plight as an Orthodox Jew in terms of despair that there was no son of his own who would ever say Kaddish for him after his death, uh, which is formally understandable, but I actually find that already to be like a pretty repellent expression of grief for the death of your entire family, for the murder of your entire, of your wife and your six children. Um, nobody's going to say Kaddish for me after I die, seems like the least of your problems, but whatever. Frankel goes on, but I would not give up. I made a last attempt to help him by inquiring whether he did not hope to see his children again in heaven. I, uh, already. I did. However, my question was followed by an outburst of tears, and now the true reason for his despair came to the fore. He explained that his children, since they died as innocent martyrs, were thus found worthy of the highest place in heaven. But as for himself, he could not expect as an old sinful man to be assigned the same place. I did not give up, but retorted. Is it not conceivable, Rabbi, that precisely this was the meaning of your surviving your children? That you may be purified through these years of suffering so that finally you too, though not innocent like your children, may become worthy of joining them in heaven? All six of your children and your wife were murdered in Auschwitz. But you survived. Maybe God let you survive. I mean, not, not your wife, I guess, who was also presumably an, you know, an older, sinful adult. But you survived so that you could live out your long life suffering in agony at the murder of your children so that you, you could be purified, so that you could then enter the right level of heaven to see your children again? This is Viktor Frankl's advice to a grieving Auschwitz survivor. I, I, I'm, I'm truly at a loss. I mean, I'm almost as much at a loss for words here as I am at his claim later in the book, which uh, he, was, he was fond of saying this at his speeches in America. He said, uh, I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast, which like completely misses the point of the Statue of Liberty, which is like, it's not for us, motherfucker. It's not for us. It's for them. It's for other people coming here. Um, but this is how he treats suffering. I understand and I respect 
the question of how should someone in the most extreme conditions live? How can someone living in hell live morally? But his insistence on finding the, his, this sort of moral opportunism, finding in, in every cruel wrinkle of chance and of human viciousness to find an opportunity to justify a man's suffering to himself, even using his own dead children as leverage in a vision of heaven, a tiered vision of heaven, which truly seems, I mean, just amazingly Christian. I mean, it couldn't be more of a Catholic vision of the afterlife. I'm shocked that this is a way that, that Jews have talked about the afterlife ever and anywhere, but I'm, I'm, I take him at his word. This is, this is how he helps people. This is how he, as he puts it, the meaning of his life is to help other people find the meaning of theirs. He tells a number of stories in this book about the war, about prison, about Auschwitz, about the other camps. And every single one of these stories seems to bear out his own reasoning, his own logic, his own conclusions. He tells the story of his Blockhol tester, which he says he was a good Blockhol tester. I mean, again, he couldn't spend more time in this book talking about how the prisoner functionaries that he encountered and the guards he encountered and the SS commandant he encountered were all good guys. Uh, but he says that he had a good Blockhol tester at one point who uh, became convinced that the the um, he had a dream, a vision in which he, th he thought the war was going to end uh, on this particular day in March 1945 or the camp was going to be liberated. And, uh, and he uh, was very, was very lighthearted and very happy because he was convinced that this was going to happen. And then the closer they got to that date, the, the shakier he got until the day before the set date that the, that every, the camp was supposed to be liberated. Um, the Blockhol tester became very ill. And then on the day that he had predicted the, the, the camp would be liberated, the Blockhol tester died because as Frankl puts it, he had he'd given up on life. That he had he had so convinced himself that, that he could, could he could trust in the augury of his dream that he he stopped, he gave up his own will to live. And that that literally killed him the day that he had predicted the camp would be liberated. And then the next day the camp was liberated. As I said at the beginning, I think arguing about whether particular details of particular Holocaust survivors memoirs or stories or recollections are purely historically accurate or consistent. I think that's a uh, both a mugs game and, uh, um, and, and mostly a uh, repellent activity. But, but I will say that, that that story and the other stories that Frankel recounted, again, all of which supported his conclusions, all of which supported the, the psychiatric practice he had already established before going into the camp. All of those stories were so consistent in bearing out exactly what he claimed to be the case that I couldn't help but think of this passage from Tim O'Brien's celebrated story, How to Tell a True War Story. A true war story is never moral. It does not instruct, nor encourage virtue, nor suggest models of proper human behavior, nor restrain men from doing the things they have always done. If a story seems moral, do not believe it. I'll close with a poem. This has gone, a long, gone on a long time. I'm going to cut it down, but probably not that much. It's going to be a long episode, but fuck it. So I'm just going to close with a poem by Anthony Hecht. This is a very famous poem. I'm only going to read part of it, uh, but I think it, is, I think it is pretty relevant to the question at hand. This question of 
of, of finding the the opportunity for your own moral virtue in moments of suffering. Focusing not on the suffering, not allowing yourself to daydream, not taking brief moments to find physical respite, to, to sneak a cigarette or to, to get a little extra sleep, but putting pushing yourself to the breaking point at every opportunity in order to become worthy of your suffering, right? The, the Victor Frankl way. Here's the end of a poem called More Light, More Light. More Light is um, Goethe's famous last words, More Light. So I'm just going to read this, the, the last two-thirds of this poem by, by Anthony Hecht. We now move to outside a German wood. Three men are there commanded to dig a hole in which the two Jews are ordered to lie down and be buried alive by the third, who is a Pole. I'm going to read that again so we all get the setting. We now move to outside a German wood. Three men are there commanded to dig a hole in which the two Jews are ordered to lie down and be buried alive by the third, who is a Pole. Not light from the shrine at Weimar beyond the hill, nor light from heaven appeared. But he did refuse. The Pole refused to bury the two Jews alive. A Luger settled back deeply in its glove. Luger is a, a German pistol. A Luger, so I'll read that, I'll read that stance again. Not light from the shrine at Weimar beyond the hill, nor light from heaven appeared, but he did refuse. A Luger settled back deeply in its glove. He was ordered to change places with the Jews. The Pole was ordered to lie down in the hole to be buried alive instead. Much casual death had drained away their souls. The thick dirt mounted toward the quivering chin. When only the head was exposed, the order came to dig him out again and to get back in. No light, no light in the blue Polish eye. When he finished, a riding boot packed down the earth. The Luger hovered lightly in its glove. He was shot in the belly and in three hours bled to death. He was shot in the belly and in three hours bled to death is, is I think, an excellent use of, uh, of, a, of a rambling, overstuffed line of iambic pentameter. Just the, the lazily meandering way it makes its way to the final stress, the final uh, slant rhyme, I think, is, is highly effective. No prayers or incense rose up in those hours, which grew to be years, and every day came mute ghosts from the ovens, sifting through crisp air, and settled upon his eyes in a black soot. Three men are ordered to dig a grave. The two Jews are ordered to lie down in the hole, and the pole is ordered to bury them alive. He refuses, and so the Jews are told to bury him. They bury him up to his face, and then they're told to dig him back out and to get back in the hole. This time, he buries them alive. The guard shoots him in the belly and lets him bleed painfully to death over the next three hours. Here is no why. Do not seek to understand. These seem to me far, far more just and moral responses to a situation like this than the statue of fucking responsibility. I'm going to read this one more time. This is the end of More Light, More Light by Anthony Hecht. We now move to outside a German wood. Three men are there commanded to dig a hole 
in which the two Jews are ordered to lie down and be buried alive by the third, who is a pole. Not light from the shrine at Weimar beyond the hill, nor light from heaven appeared, but he did refuse. A luger settled back deeply in its glove. He was ordered to change places with the Jews. Much casual death had drained away their souls. The thick dirt mounted toward the quivering chin. When only the head was exposed, the order came to dig him out again and to get back in. No light, no light in the blue Polish eye when he finished a riding boot packed down the earth. The Luger hovered lightly in its glove. He was shot in the belly and in three hours bled to death. No prayers or incense rose up in those hours, which grew to be years. And every day came mute ghosts from the ovens, sifting through crisp air, and settled upon his eyes in a black soot. All right, everybody, that is this week's show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience with this unusual episode. Uh, I, I will have, should have a secret show episode out, maybe kind of a, like a, a, a silly cotton candy one soon. And, um, and I, I promise a more regular, a more normal episode next week. I am also, I have been thinking about this question of meaning. And while I think uh, Frankel more or less bungles it obscenely, I think there's more to say. And I, I have... Um, I have some thoughts and some questions about it. So I, I do want to do, I'm going to return to this question of, of meaning. But for now, thank you all for listening. Uh, you can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs>